0: Welcome, teacher friend. I'm Lori. And I'm Melissa. We are two literacy educators in Baltimore. We want the best for all kids, and we know you do too. Our district recently adopted a new literacy curriculum, which meant a lot
1: of change for everyone. Lori and I can't wait to keep learning about literacy with you today.
0: Hi, everyone. Welcome to Literacy Podcast. Melissa and Lori love literacy. Melissa, I can't wait for today's conversation, especially because we're crossing some oceans to talk yeah, to so uh, our guest today.
1: <laughs> our first international podcast. <laughs> yeah,
0: very exciting. So, we are talking today to uh, James Murphy, who edited the Research Ed Guide to Literacy, an evidence-informed guide for teachers. And uh, Melissa, I know we read this this guide and mm-hmm. found such value in it, and When we talked to James, it was just in our pre-call, it was just so exciting to hear. Um, his thoughts. So yeah. I can't wait for this conversation.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I, learned, I learned a lot. And I know, I mean, you know that one of the things that bothers both of us is when people just like slap on the, this is, this is research-based or this, is you know, this is science of reading uh, aligned and it's not really. <laughs> and so yeah. I'm really, um, I was excited to read the book for that reason to see like, what does it really mean to be evidence-informed and and what actually is and what isn't. So
0: it's exciting to have yeah. this conversation so, today. <laughs> yeah, so James, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. We uh, are excited uh, to have you, and, and we're we're thrilled that you took some time. And we know you're really busy, and you're an esteemed author. So thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Would you share a little bit about yourself and and just frame who you are for our listeners?
2: Sure. Well, a little bit of um, personal background. The accent is from New Zealand. Uh, My (laughs) parents are both Irish, I was born in Wales, Uh, I grew up in New Zealand, having travelled there via Australia, Uh, and I've been back teaching in the UK about 15 years now. Uh, I guess I had been teaching for some time, and about seven years into my teaching realised that there were some things I didn't know, Uh, like, for example how come the students I taught paragraphs to last year not only can't remember how to do it, but swear it never happened at all) <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and, and why is it that we teach things and we don't remember them? And, mm. of course, one of the yeah. things that made me realise when that happened was all these years I've been thinking, what did their last teacher teach them?
1: Right. <laughs> and the last teacher
2: taught them exactly what they were supposed to, but they hadn't remembered. Uh, so that put me on a path which eventually led to me doing a master's in education and a postgraduate diploma in special education. Uh, and that really has um, changed my whole professional direction in terms of trying to get the message to colleagues that there are ways of teaching those students who have traditionally been failed or rejected by the education system. Yeah. Uh, yeah
0: and thank you for uh for we we can't wait to hear all of what you have to say but first and foremost thank you for framing where your accent is from because <laughs> it's beautiful I just want to listen you talk all day <laughs>
2: <laughs> well
0: um there aren't so, that
2: many people who would say that <laughs> <laughs> Sure, um,
0: Melissa and I are, are too. We, we could just listen all day long and, and talk literacy with you all day long.
2: <laughs> yeah, there's there's lots to talk about, isn't there? That's uh, you know, and I think that literacy um, is so often regarded as some kind of poor relation in education, as if it's what the leftover teachers who aren't good enough to teach the other kids are meant to do. Mm. Whereas in fact, you know, our, one of our many mantras is. Uh, the most serious learning difficulties require the highest level of teaching skills and uh, so if you want to be good at teaching children to read and if you want to be good at teaching children to write and to spell there is a lot to learn. The ones who learn it kind of almost effortlessly and by themselves are the ones who should get the credit. Uh, When we have those children in our class there's very little credit that we can take as teachers um the test for us as a teacher is what happens when we run into a student with problems yeah uh so would you like to talk about this uh research ed guide that we uh published
0: absolutely yes I'm wondering uh, yeah I feel like I want to jump into that
1: <laughs> <laughs> and I'm wondering how it came to be like how did you how, how did this become a thing how did it become your thing <laughs>
2: uh Research Ed wanted to put out a number of guides. Having had conferences over a number of years, it was clear that there's strong scientific consensus around some issues, and the aim was to create some uh, short, effectively research digests for teachers Mm -hmm. that they can dive into and get the key points out of the research with practical application to how they teach. Uh, In the case of the literacy guide, uh, we deliberately pitched it, slightly ahead of the beginner it's meant to be uh, slightly meaty demanding it's basically post-grad stuff we're assuming that our teachers are educated Mm -hmm. we're assuming that they want to know and that they're prepared to do some hard work it's not for people who want um, a five minute lesson plan or you know a few bullet points or posters on the wall Mm -hmm. this is for people who really want to reflect on their practice.
1: Yeah, but I would say at least my experience reading it is I agree it's totally meaty, but it's also short enough that it yeah. doesn't feel overwhelming, right? Like that I I feel like I I could read one of one of the chapters in, I don't know, a half hour. Yeah. <laughs> I want to reread it again, but you know, I, it wasn't so so meaty that it turned me off and I just said I don't have time for that.
2: <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so one way that this book can be used is Uh, by schools and their professional development programs. Mm -hmm. Teachers can go away and read a chapter in half an hour or so, then come back together and discuss and reflect on how they might uh, act on that to adjust or test their practice in some areas. Mm -hmm. So... um, and But exactly that. Teachers are busy people. They're often tired people. At the end of the day, they often fall asleep in front of the TV. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, <so> it's, <laughs> I've been uh, there. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so we don't want to give them a big weighty book. It's great if they want a summer read, you know, on the beach or whatever. But I think for actual practical reference during the teaching year, you want short, meaty chunks that people can read and digest.
0: Yeah. hmm yeah, and I I found it so interesting because there were lots of, of uh, research pieces cited that I had not encountered before. So I felt excited about learning new research points that um, that were cited in, in the guide, and there are so many references in each chapter. <laughs> like, I'm just looking, for example, at chapter one, there's like 33 pages. citations, so that's that's a huge huge that's a huge benefit to the reader to to us to be learning lots of different elements of research as we're reading that like you know chapter one is is i'm looking at how many pages it's not it's not a whole lot of pa- i mean what 10 pages and there's 33 references so maybe 12 pages that, i mean that's all that's um that's meaty and and but it was so interesting that it didn't feel heavy to read so i just want to put that out there
2: yes um and in fact, in chapter two, um, uh Kerry Hempenstall's chapter on myths and misconceptions around literacy mm. teaching. Um, you know, Kerry's reference list I think goes from page thirty-six to forty seven. Uh, <laughs> it's it's massive. And one of the reasons I wanted him in there actually is because his reference lists are gold. You know, and you can yeah. it's, uh he publishes blogs on the website of the National Institute for Direct Instruction, NIFTI, and um, his blogs are also full of research references. Um, He's an absolute encyclopedia. So having Kerry in there um, is a huge advantage for any teacher who's serious about digging into this stuff.
0: Yeah, and that one in particular is really intriguing. So for those listening, you know, we can, we'll post a link to, if you'd like to purchase the the Research Ed Guide to Literacy, we'll post a link so that you can do that. But chapter two is the one that James is talking about now, and it's titled Myths and Evidence. And you're right, there are, I'm just, I checked Yeah, There's a ton of, uh, I mean, I figured you knew. There's like 143 citations on that one. Yep. <laughs> um, but it's really interesting because it's, it incorporates so, like, the um gosh, like the music training and how that helps with like it's so varied in in the the evidence that it's citing. It's not just it, just like cognitive processes.
2: Yes. And um the I think the great thing about Kerry is he's quite objective. He doesn't go around just trashing stuff and saying, oh, that's <laughs> rubbish and don't do that. What he says is there is no evidence in the peer-reviewed literature for this yet, so teachers should be wary about investing time and students' energy in this. However, you know, consider this. Uh, Actually, there's not much evidence for that either. And most of that chapter is about things that have been tried but don't have much evidence. And one of the reasons for that is we really want teachers to be good at evaluating the evidence for Mm -hmm. what they're being told is a great idea, as opposed to just... Being, you know, having to respond to authority figures um, and just do what they're told.
1: Yeah, yes. that's what I was going to ask because I feel like any anything that's out there, right, things we're told as teachers or products, they often, like, they come with those stickers that are like, there's evidence for this. Science of reading a lot. <laughs> um, and sometimes it is just like a study or, you know, it's just, I, I'm wondering how, how do you all, you know, figure out what is, how do you evaluate what is actual, like, evidence-informed versus sometimes what we see, which is just like a, I don't know, maybe one study or something. Like, how do we, how do we help teachers know the difference between
2: those? Sure. Um, I think that, um, as a kind of the first thing, is the contributors to this book um, are all uh, people with academic and practical experience. Mm-hmm. And and they have all actually looked at um, the consensus of scientific evidence. And the first thing is, where is there a convergence of scientific evidence? The second point to that is then, well, what do you mean by scientific evidence? Yeah. Um, and we would say we're primarily interested in peer-reviewed studies, published journals. Um, that's the... Kind of the convention for establishing scientific consensus. Um, the third aspect of that is that one study, as you say, is not enough. Um, we mm-hmm. need to see replications or confirmations of that over time. That takes time and it takes money. So some of those are slow to emerge. Um, but there are a number of things around reading in particular, which is clearly the most researched topic in mm. educational research. Um, that have drawn together a very strong consensus. And in the chapter by the Weldalls and Buckingham on moving towards um, a label-free approach to resolving reading difficulties, they talk Mm -hmm. about that scientific evidence and the fact that we don't need separate classifications of poor readers and dyslexics and so on. We just need to know how to teach children with reading difficulties.
1: Yeah.
2: Um, Mm -hmm. I think that... uh, a key point is that things are often truthy. They sound like they should work.
0: Yeah, I like that. Yeah,
2: it's not my it's not my original idea. It's, been, it's a phrase been around for a while, but um, they sound like they should be true. Um, yeah. VAK learning styles, for instance, seems like it should work. Um, And indeed, uh, some of the um, physical exercise programs, when you listen to people's explanations, sound like they should work. But when you actually look at the research, one of the guiding things that has come out is you tend to get what you teach. Uh, If you uh, get someone to do a lot of music practice, they'll tend to be much better at music. But there's no particular reason why we would expect that to transfer to their reading. Teaching children to play chess better tends to create better chess masters, but it doesn't actually make them better at reading. And um, uh, getting students to improve their visual memory, for instance, you will get students perhaps with better visual memory, but that again does not change or improve their reading.
0: Yeah. I think that that's uh, like, yes, we need to help. I think like, one of the Mullis and I have a lot of conversations and, and we are in those, um, you know, Facebook science of reading groups and things like that. Mm -hmm. And like, I just feel so compelled to sometimes comment and be like, like when people ask questions, because they're, you know, people are posting things with, they're going to Facebook to find knowledge Mm -hmm. about the science of reading. They're going to, you know, places where they're relying on other educators, And what I find interesting about that is that all of us educators don't necessarily have the same knowledge base in the science of reading and we don't have the accurate knowledge base, right? So some do, (laughs) some don't, and some are just like dangling in this in-between area. And so I'm just like, I would just love to know, like, you know, how how could we, how can we learn, what is um research based from this guide like how can this guide help us understand um what's evidence based what's research based um i think though, i honestly think the first couple chapters are just awesome i and the one that you just mentioned the um a non categorical approach to teaching low progress readers in the primary school yep it's it's so um it's, I feel like I need to interpret that in, for the United States (laughs) Mm -hmm. and like, but I mean, same concept, right? Like we need to like uh, rejig the title to, to, uh, to apply. But if we have that approach that it's not categorizing kids, it's categorizing struggles and then approaching the struggles versus categorizing the student.
2: Exactly right.
0: I'm just, I'm curious, like, what your thoughts are on that because I think this guide is immensely helpful. I really, I'm, I'm, I can't wait to give it another read, like, take two
2: and <laughs> learn more. Yeah. Um, so, I'll, I'll give you a short answer and then, a, and then a slightly more circuitous answer. The short answer is that I think uh, if you want to get to grips with education research, the research aid guides um, are quite helpful, um, and I can say that um, confidently. On the basis that I'm not receiving any royalties for saying that. <laughs> but um, they. Um, Neither
0: are we. Yay. <laughs> yeah.
2: So uh, the other thing I would say, though, is that um, uh, the chapters here, if you look at the way that the writers, particularly in those first two chapters, go about um, kind of saying this is valid and this isn't and why, and you'll see the way that they look at the studies and, and the number of studies that have been done mm-hmm. and what are the clearly appointed uh, or agreed strategies or approaches from the wider scientific community. There's a wonderful paper, actually, that I would really recommend people think about by um, Keith Stanovich and Paula Stanovich. Do you know Keith Stanovich? He's a really I well do known. Not. He's a really well known reading researcher based at Toronto University, uh, and he became prominent in the eighties when his research discovered, um, against his expectations, that um, good readers don't rely on context; they are actually decoding the words, mm-hmm. and it's the poor readers who are relying on context. And it had been. Um, until then, there had been a strong consensus in the other direction. And that was when, if you like, the reading wars began in earnest. Mm-hmm. Some people were quite... Got it. Um, and he, he's done a, a wonderful paper called um, Using Science and Reason in Education. I think that's the name of it. Uh, and um, in it, they, um, they point out exactly this question of how teachers can get to grips with um what's got a research base and what doesn't what should we spend our time on and what shouldn't we and what do you do when there isn't a lot of peer-reviewed research but the approach looks promising Mm. and he talks about the fact that you know as a teacher you're actually free to apply reason as well but here are some guidelines when i say he i mean they Um, (laughs) And uh, so I'd really recommend Stanovich. Um, I think that's 2003, Stanovich K and Stanovich P. Um, And uh, that's a really good starting place for getting to grips with research and practice. On the wider issue, what I would say is that um, education has had two main streams. One stream has been focused on what you might call the sociology of education It has seen it as a social interaction and often as a political transaction. And there is much truth in that. It is a social interaction. It does have political implications and some of those are quite significant. Um, But that area has been so beset by polemic that um, it's become almost evidence-free at its extremes uh, and it's about who agrees with my ideology. Um, And then at the other... other end you 've got a stream that is mostly focused on psychology and how people learn stuff it 's a much smaller um, quadrant of the um, of the sector, um, and at its extreme that can become abstract in the sense of um, a bit ivory tower about things that might work and might not um, okay. and focused on things like statistical significance, which has very little bearing. Um, So, and then you see studies, for example, that suggest that an effect size of 0.24 for a reading intervention is fine, even though what that translates to is about three months additional progress for a child who may be four or five years behind, Mm. and the child can't even see the progress that they've made. So that kind of dabbling with academic statistical significance has been, in my view, very harmful to education. It discredits research and it means that we're not focusing on what will actually make a difference for children so we've got both those problems um or both those extremes to contend with and then you've got people in the middle who kind of shrug and go gee I don't know I'll just close the <laughs> door to my classroom and do my best
0: yeah can Probably you contextualize <laughs> yeah I'm wondering if you can contextualize where like where um like balance literally fits balanced literally, balanced literacy fits on that continuum, and where science of reading fits on that continuum, just to like stamp that for our listeners.
2: Sure, so um, the work that's going on at the moment, the last couple of years, um, uh, a lot of it's become sort of pulled under this banner of the science of reading, and you can tell that's having an effect because now there are people writing blog posts and articles saying there's no such thing as the science of reading, and we can't (laughs) know anything about reading, it's like, sorry, you're 50 years too late. We do know quite a lot about reading. Uh, so, um, so the science of reading stuff is around that, um, that psychology end of the education spectrum, but it's very much focusing now on implementation. If this is the case, then how do I teach that to a student? Yeah. Or if this is the problem they have, how can I resolve that? And the science of reading stuff is fantastic because it's now at a point of development where it's offering practical solutions and implementation steps for teachers. And many of those simply require a small tweak in the way that we provide explanations or present information or what we choose to focus the time on. It doesn't require any extra time or money. Um, The balanced literacy is is an interesting point because... We didn't hear much too much about balanced literacy. We used to hear a lot about whole language. Then when um, the evidence was pretty clear that phonics is what students need to ensure that they move out of that emergent reader phase, um, people who had been advocating whole language said, well, of course, we've never been against phonics. What we um, are talking about here is just that there's no best way overall. And what we need to do is just combine things for whatever's right for that child. And as teachers, we know best. Um, To which my answer is, unless we're highly skilled, we don't know best. Why would we? Uh, And in fact, the problem with it is that it gives the teacher a great deal of fluidity. Uh, Without some really clear accountability on student progress in reading, balanced literacy can just become... Um, a narrative that we use to justify the status quo of 20% of students going through primary and then secondary school unable to read successfully. Mm -hmm. Uh, It doesn't mean that we can't do other things. Of course we do. We build on initial phonics with a wide and rich experience of literature and storytelling. We expose them to a range of different types of texts and all of that. We want them to develop comprehension skills. The problem is if your balanced literacy version includes strategies like uh, what word would make sense in that sentence, Uh, what word would make sense based on the first letter, look at the (laughs) picture and think about what might be going on those Ah. strategies aren't just not helpful to the student, they actively undermine any phonics training that they've had Mm -hmm. and make it more difficult and more confusing for the child to make progress. Mm -hmm.
1: I was just thinking, Laurie, of uh, the teacher that we just talked to um, who said that, you know, she... She was, she had probably about the similar to what you said, James, like 20% of her students who at the end of kindergarten went to first grade, not reading on the, the level they should be, but yeah. she didn't really know why. Um, and now that she's learning the science of reading, what she said yeah. was like, now I know why Like I can figure out the, the this is yeah. what they're missing and help them versus yes. like, the, ah, yeah. I don't really
0: know. Yeah. I tried. <laughs> but I think what's what's paramount to mention there, Melissa, is that, now that she knows and she implemented the science of reading, like research, she's used, she, I mean, she's used, she's teaching them how to understand the, the the phonemic awareness, the phonics. She's using a systematic approach. Yep. 100% of them, 100% of her students met the assessment benchmark. Yep. So, and that's not even, she just started learning about it in I'd say, December. she said December, right? Yep. So that's like six months ago. Yep. <laughs> it's not even a lifetime. Like, I think that's what's important to know. And I want to draw it back to, James, what you just said to the, you know, really the first chapter of the book, The Guide, is about foundational skills. Mm-hmm. And that, yeah, I I think it's really I assume that's there intentionally uh, in the very beginning, that first chapter, um, you know, to to share about foundational skills, and and then the the book kind of progresses from there. So I'm wondering if you can kind of connect what you just shared to the guide, and um, maybe talk through like that that first chapter supporting foundational skills research and uh, a little bit, and then um, maybe we talk again about that second chapter and how to go about. Um, questioning those misconceptions because what you just shared that like reading is a visual activity I think is is really important to to talk a little bit deeper about um because I know that that's a big 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 question that um I feel like everyone is asking right now like if we don't (laughs) if we don't do this and I don't have a systematic phonics program what do I do you know it's almost like we're they'll they're flailing you know teachers are flailing in the in the water versus knowing how to swim, because they know that what they, weren't, they, they, what they have in materials don't work, but they're not quite sure what does work.
2: Yeah. Uh, and so this, um, you know, chapter one will give um, teachers a really clear framework for thinking about uh, what, what is an evidence-based approach. Um, And then the further work, you know, some of the other chapters will build on that. Uh, And it is deliberately designed to kind of build up in a sequence from uh, learning to read and then into writing. Uh, And uh, we've tended to focus more on the upper levels on that just because of space. But uh, what I would say is as far as um, teachers who are setting out, there are some really good um, training programs around that they can access online uh, and that will give them the basics. Um, I know the UK one's best. So um, two of them are uh, Sounds Right. So Sounds hyphen, and then the word Right, W-R-I-T-E. And also Phonics International. uh, And both of those offer an online training program in phonics um, for parents or teachers. And just having that knowledge base Uh, established is immensely helpful. Mm -hmm. Uh, We don't know what we don't know a lot of the time. That's one of our biggest problems. And the one Mm -hmm. reason for teachers to really engage with research is that it gets us to realise that there are things we may never have thought of or that concepts and ideas that we had were only superficial and that actually under examination something else turns out to be quite the case. And reading is particularly deceptive human activity. Um, Our experience of reading as fluent readers is deceptive. Mm -hmm. Uh, The the rate at which we are processing language makes us think that we are seeing the words as pictures and that we have learned them Mm -hmm. so quickly that we just recognise them. We don't. It's actually where the processing is going so fast from matching the symbols to uh, words in our spoken language repository and then matching that with our um, semantic repository and then matching that with our perception and, and working memory of the context. And then that translates back into building on the narrative that we've been acquiring. Uh, and all that's happening at lightning speed. So Stanislas de Hain, the French neuropsychologist, um, says that... Um, Fluent readers read at 300 words per minute silently. Wow. Uh, And what that means is in point two of a second, you've um, decoded the word, you've distinguished it from other similar words, you've uh, linked it to meaning, sound and context and usage and then you've put that into the meaning of the rest of the sentence and carried on
1: somehow you describing that just made me feel like it's amazing that we learn how to read
2: <laughs> oh, absolutely it's like so much absolutely. that our
1: brain is doing so quickly
2: <laughs> it's, it's a remarkable testament to what the human brain is capable of but because it's so ubiquitous we underrate it all the time
0: mm-hmm. yeah
2: and, and it's completely i mean canceled.
0: that's just a huge plug for for using um you know systematic phonics to teach reading because Like you need to wire – that's what I always think about is like is we're wiring kids' brains, and I know that's not new, but that's the visual that I get in my head. And if we need to wire that so that those systems can interact very, very quickly like you just described. Exactly right.
2: So we we need to move from um, uh, the precision teachers, um, uh, US-based movement started in the 70s. Um, They looked at, from a behavioural perspective – um, as an applied behavior analysis, looking at what learning is like at different stages of competence. And they said, you know, the first stage is acquisition, um, where you're just getting to grips with it. And then the second stage is accuracy, where you can perform it, whatever it is you're learning, um, accurately but slowly. And then the really, the real bottleneck is building that accurate behavior to fluency. Mm-hmm. Once you've got to fluency, you have access to generalization you can use that word or that learning in many different contexts and you have retention, it's much more likely to remain in long-term memory and be available for recall. Mm -hmm. So, um, getting students not just to accuracy but fluency is the job of the reading teacher, especially in those early years.
0: Yeah. And in order to do that, you have to know a whole lot. (laughs) And the research is the key, right? (laughs)
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, and and again, uh, because so much work has been done in the research on reading, actually, many of the solutions that we have now are easily applied. For instance, um, it only takes a few minutes a day of carefully sequenced um, fluency practice for students to build up very high rates of reading fluency. Mm-hmm. So, but what the research says is that fluency practice should be short, one to three minutes. It should be daily, as often as possible during the week. It should be timed so that it's standardised and so that the student has a short target to meet. Um, And um, it should be carefully sequenced uh, because if you mix up things, then it's really hard to tease which bits of it are giving the student difficulty. So you need them to be able to practise different component skills and then combine those component skills once they've become fluent. Mm -hmm.
1: I have two questions for you, James. Same, sure. <laughs> similar topic, though. So I've always been in the secondary world, right? So, you know, I've I've seen this happen where, I mean my students are coming in and they're they're still having some, you know, issues with accuracy yep, or yep. definitely fluency. But we're told to stay, you know, grade level texts, really deep mm. comprehension questions, like you know, digging in, um, and and that feels like. There's a a disconnect there at the secondary world of like making sure that they do have the, those initial skills. But then I also see on the flip side, sometimes I, I'm in a letters training and I've heard some, some teachers who have said like, well, why don't we just forget about like reading grade level texts and doing read alouds and all those other things. And just, let's just make sure that they get that accuracy and fluency and like, (laughs) only mm-hmm. focus there. And then I get where I'm like, well, that, that leaves out the whole language comprehension <laughs> strand of, yes. the, of the rope.
0: Yeah.
1: Um so I'm just wondering what you feel like about about the balance of of that and, and how we Yeah.
2: That's a great, great question. And And it's literally a billion dollar question because (laughs) money is spent on ineffective reading intervention or is spent on education that children can't access because their reading skills aren't up there. So resolving that, in my view, is the number one way to make education pay for itself by actually building a better society and a healthier economy. How do we do that? Um, mm-hmm. the answer is to think, in my view, from the view of the child's entitlement. What is it that they are meant to be getting? They are meant to be getting an education. Are they getting an education if they can't read? No. no. <laughs> if we teach them to read but they don't know anything else, have they got an education? No. no. So we have to do both. How do we do both? Um, the answer is really careful assessment and screening. Mm. Identify any students with gaps. Assess them in enough detail to be able to match the issues they have with an effective short-term intervention. Deal with it effectively in that intervention and minimise the time out of the classroom that it requires, and make sure that the classroom offers a challenging, a rich, um, mm-hmm. uh, and really uh, broad education, so that they are, uh, you know, they are equipped for life when they leave school. Um, what? bugs me most is that some children are deemed either too stupid or too poor or too dyslexic uh, to warrant a proper education. And mm-hmm. the answer is not that the child has a problem. The answer is that the system mm-hmm. does not have the expertise resonant within it to meet their needs. Uh, I mentioned Siegfried Engelmann in our, our last conversation. Um, and Engelman is really clear. He says. It's not really a case of dyslexia, it's a case of (laughs) dysteachia. It's because they haven't been taught adequately and rigorously in the early stages that they then continue to have these problems that hamper them throughout their education. Uh, It's not necessary, but it does involve teachers uh, kind of humbling ourselves a little bit, admitting we have things to learn, and working out the best way to make this happen in our schools.
1: Yeah, I really enjoyed the chapter about assessing literacy skills for that reason, because I think yep. in when I look at our system, that's one of the things I always bring up is, you know, we have, um, you know, with a, a three time a year standard. You get a student's like, are they on grade level, below grade level in reading? But people try and like use that to figure out what, <laughs> how to help a student, but yep. you really can't, right? Like you don't no. know what's going yeah. on with a student's reading
0: from that one
1: assessment. No. So that was a really helpful chapter for me to and read. And
0: also like, it depends on the assessment too, right? Like we have to be critical consumers of the assessment. Yeah. Like yeah. there's, there's so much that goes, I think your assessment chapter speaks to that, but um, in the guide, but yeah, there's, there are just being a critical consumer of really everything. And I think it's, it's so hard for educators because it just seems like there's so much that they need to know and they're not getting it at their In their undergrad or in their... We're having so many people tell them, like, yeah, this is what you're supposed to do. Yeah.
2: Yeah. I mean, if there's a group that I would target most strongly for professional development on screening and assessment, it would be school leaders. Mm -hmm. Uh, I agree. Undoubtedly, (laughs) they tend to be the least skilled when it comes to knowing what students need, uh, the least skilled when it comes to knowing how interventions work. Mm -hmm. They normally avoid special educational needs like the plague. It's seen as a dead end to their career. Um, And uh, as a result, um, they often lack the knowledge and the skills to um, effectively implement assessment systems in the school. Uh, Yeah. And all of this is
0: really, like, exacerbated if there's not a high-quality curriculum in place, like a high-quality Tier 1 curriculum for teachers to use or high quality um, structures, right? Um, I think that like you, if you can wrap around a high quality curriculum, then you can provide that short term intervention in in service of the curriculum um, and in support of. But you and the assessments then roll into that. Like everything can wrap around that, and I feel like that's a huge shift from where we've been before, like yes. curriculum and materials and are really at the center and then everything comes out whereas i feel like when i first started teaching the curriculum was like at the outside mm-hmm. and you know in the middle was like pedagogy and then standards and it was just it we're we're flipping the model but there's yep. there's such a struggle for understanding
2: yeah um and you know the curriculum stuff is hard because it's about it's the what of teaching and it's the sequence of the what, and then we get to the, okay, now we know what that we're going to teach them in the sequence. How are we going to do that effectively? Mm-hmm. Um, and that all involves quite a lot of brain power, quite a lot of thinking, um, but it's well worth it because we all become better teachers as a result. Uh, in the process of school improvement, because we often are asked to work with schools who are, um, uh, are trying to really build or rebuild or raise standards. Um, we think that there's basically a three tier approach, and you can't really get around the sequence. The first is that you have to establish standards of behaviour. Until behaviour is um, settled in the school and both teachers and senior staff have headspace to think about other things, you focus on getting the behaviour right. Once behaviour is right, you then introduce um, raising the level of challenge, depth and breadth in the curriculum. Uh, and that includes providing more challenging uh, and stimulating texts for children to read. Uh, and once you've done that, then it will become apparent who the students are who aren't able to access those texts. Uh, in many of the schools that we've worked with, uh, they are turning around from a point where for some years, teachers had dumbed down the curriculum and the texts that they were giving students to minimise hassles and instead what we're saying is no raise the standard in the curriculum and then we will intervene with the students who aren't able to keep up with that um, and that that has been uh, borne out time and again that um, that way the vast majority of students are straight on and getting more out of their education uh, and the students who need help can then be addressed in a much calmer and more productive environment
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that, I mean, what I'm hearing you say is that really supports what we talk about all the time on this podcast is that high quality materials matter and it matters that students are engaged in rigorous grade level work with teachers who believe that they can do this work. Yes. And we're not going to give students who are struggling or, or who are acting out behaviorally lesser work we're right. we're we're giving them the work that is grade level that is appropriate and then we're going to support them in accessing that work. Is that exactly, what I'm hearing you say?
2: Exactly right. So I was
0: going to uh, ask that James because yeah. I in my
1: experience I've seen some behavior challenges from students that actually came from the other two things that you mentioned which was like either they're bored because what yep. they're doing isn't challenging <laughs> at all yep. or because they're you know they're getting a, like they maybe they're struggling with reading so their way of not having to deal with that is to (laughs) Mm -hmm. just do whatever they do behavior wise.
2: (laughs) Yep, exactly. And so that's often why, you know, um, my wife and I have this organization, Thinking Reading, that's set up to support secondary schools. And Mm -hmm. we often get the call from schools who say, um, what we're finding is we've got students who are acting up. um, And when we look at it, there's a very clear correlation between their behaviour points and their reading age. Mm-hmm. They've got a high behaviour points and they've got a very low reading age. They clearly don't, can't access what's going on. What do we do for them? Uh, and then, as you say, there are other students, if we don't have enough challenge, we will have students who are bored and they either just then get up to mischief, yeah, and <laughs> of, often very cleverly <laughs> and without us even noticing, um, or um, uh, indeed they'll... Um, They'll make life difficult for other students. I remember the yeah. um, when I was a head of English in London, uh, the worst-behaved boy in the year group. We moved him from the bottom set into the top set, or I think you would call it a track in the states, um, mm-hmm. and uh, his behaviour problems disappeared because the work was harder and uh, nobody was very interested in him making a smart comment. <laughs> they were all wanting to do the work, um, and he was clearly very able. Uh, and needed more stimulation. Instead of going, "Oh, he's badly behaved. Put him in the bottom set," we put him in the top set. You know, mm-hmm. just as an I example. think that
0: also gets that. That's a great example, and that also gets back to what you mentioned earlier in how we support intervention. Because mm-hmm. I, I, I think there are two tracks to intervention, and after reading your guide, I believe that you're. I know it's not your guide, (laughs) but it is your guide, (laughs) your edited guide. Uh, (laughs) I think that, that I want to affirm that this is the understanding and the takeaway from the guide as well. And that if you have this, this tier one, um, you know, curriculum or experience that is rich with, with high quality texts and, and grade level work is what I'm saying, um, that really the, the quote, interventions that are brief should meet one of the two strands of, of the rope. So the language acquisition should look like filling in the gaps in foundational skills. And that's very clear. In the tier one, we know that there's going to be fluency, but we also need to address that in the interventions because we know that that's yep. massively important. But then also, I feel like I struggle a lot in um, conversations with teachers or, or with um, just generally, conver- and I'm just, you know, even friends who are teachers, with like what interventions look like in terms of, quote, comprehension. And so I think that the chapter that we talked about earlier, um, the non-categorical approach to teaching low-progress readers, that to me is speaking to that approach of like, it's in service of the the content that they're learning in their core classes, but we're also trying to support that fluency. So we're not like, it's not easy. It's, it's a lot of stuff put together, but it, it doesn't look like, like it does look like students accessing content on topics, but it doesn't look like students, um, doing like passages where they're answering questions to find the main idea or to um, you, to do like isolated skill work. And so I feel like that's, it's hard to it, it's, it's not an easy, like it It speaks to what we've been talking about this whole time. We all need to be so knowledgeable about all of this mm-hmm. stuff and yeah. be reading the research and and really deeply understand it. It's not like a, we'll just throw them in a group and and do this and it's fine. And that's the shift that I think yeah. your guide is helping to get across because it it was like that, like 20 years ago, it was like, put them in a group, we'll teach them how to find the main idea. And then they can bump right back in and they'll be totally fine, but that's not where we are now. So I'm curious about, about your take on that and if my take is accurate.
2: <laughs> I think that um, uh, the, what we can do in intervention uh, regarding comprehension is necessarily limited because uh, I was just reading another paper last night, actually, about the fact that uh, comprehension is so affected by domain knowledge and mm-hmm. domain knowledge is so affected by vocabulary And so none of these things are independent. The aim is to set up virtuous circles or cycles where we, um, by addressing children's uh, thinking strategies in the context of knowledge and building their vocabulary so that they can both understand and talk about that knowledge, um, we're, we're laying foundations. And then the amount that we can do with that is pretty much infinite Um, Mm -hmm. The challenge for curriculum designers is to make sure that there is uh, overlap and connection between the different disciplines and knowledge, and within the disciplines and knowledge, uh, there is um, connection. So Mm -hmm. having a carefully sequenced science curriculum, for instance, will build um, from one topic to the other, rather than just move on to the next topic and teach another set of keywords. Mm-hmm. So you'll continue to review and address some of the keywords. You will continue to think about how some of the concepts that you learned in the last topic apply to this one. Uh, yep. And that kind of curriculum sequence is really important. Uh, and it's uh, we've often had, well, not often, sometimes had teachers say, uh, "Look, you've addressed this child's reading; they're clearly better at reading, but you know their comprehension's still not very strong." And it's like, "Yeah, but how do you expect them?" Uh, in business studies, for example, how can we teach them about that in a reading intervention? You are the business studies teacher. Teach them what they need to know, and okay. then once they know that, you will probably find that they can then explain, they can understand, and they can work with it. Uh, intervention is not um, should not be seen as a bolt on. It needs to be an integral part of the curriculum, which is brought into play when students have a particular defi- deficit and that deficit needs to be addressed as quickly and systematically as possible so that they are not losing their curriculum entitlement.
0: And you said what I said so much better. Thank you. Okay. <laughs> I was like, I rattled on, um, but I, yeah, I agree. And I'm curious. I want to know what you think about, you know, I think in the, the U S at least schools are getting um, lots of funding, from the COVID, from COVID and, you know, all this, this funding that's coming in. um, I read the 74 and I was reading about how schools are planning to use this. And a lot of schools are planning to use it for reading, tutoring, reading intervention. And I and just have a bajillion questions for them. Like, what does that look like? And how are we ensuring that they're wrapping around that content knowledge, that that domain knowledge, inclusive of vocabulary? So, (laughs) um,
2: There's been a lot of talk here as well. I mean, in the UK, they are spending way less than they are in the States. So let's be clear about that. Uh, (laughs) And there's a fair bit of teacher discontent about that. But um, I think, in in short, uh, effective reading intervention is a really good way to use that funding. The question is what's an effective reading intervention? Mm-hmm. And what we would say is, is there a, um, a rate of progress of at least three months for every month they're in the intervention? In other words, in four months in the intervention, they've gained a year in their reading. Now, you can get much more than that. Um, In thinking reading, for example, we regularly see students um, making um, five years progress in six months. So a really systematic reading intervention that is built on really detailed assessment can get really good results. But there are plenty of things out there that don't do that. Uh, And I'd I'd argue that they are not a good investment because they actually teach the child they can't do this. Um, (laughs) Teachers' professional development is really, really important. But, again, you can't just assume that the teacher professional development is going to be good teacher professional development. It needs to be um, it needs to be systematic. It needs to be research-based. Uh, and it needs to engage teachers in professional debate so they're actually thinking and not just doing what they're told. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, I'm not sure about in the States, but in the UK, um, We've already, we have already had really significant inequalities and really significant mental health stresses for some of our young people um, after years of a program that was dubbed austerity um, and, and disproportionately affected poorer families. Um, obviously, the um, pandemic has really exacerbated that and oh. teachers are very concerned about uh, the mental health of their students and the fact that they are teachers, not mental health workers. Uh, And there's a strong consensus here, I think, that investing some of that funding in in mental health services in schools would be a very good way of um, short-circuiting some of the long-term problems that are likely to arise from Mm -hmm. the pandemic.
0: That's a really good point that I hadn't thought of. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I am... I think you've gotten me think, to think a whole lot today about the idea of what's truthy and how we can quick, quickly identify what's truthy and what is the truth. And um, because there's, you know, post post-pandemic, all of this, you know, funding is coming in and the materials now, I feel like, are being ramped up more than ever, like, that sticker is slapped on like science of reading align evidence-based
1: yeah. and yeah.
0: Yeah. there you know I feel like it's 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 hard to know what's right like you said um we don't know what we don't know and when when we're being you know and I mean we in the the frame of like district leaders teachers principals you know you're you have all these materials out and you're thinking what is the real stuff like let me sift through and find yeah. the real stuff that fits um yeah. I think your the guide would be a phenomenal resource to help but it, it's it's it it is going to be work like I think that's what I want yeah. listeners to know is it's it's not a quick answer it's not like a question in the Facebook group and you get your answer and if that is the case then I think we should question the answer
2: uh, exactly. Um, I think social media has been fantastic for teachers to link to research and to be introduced to research. But if yeah. we're just taking our um, our lead from other people's opinions on social media, mm-hmm. we're probably in a worse position than when we started. Um, we believe that the answer is to really raise the level of expertise. I'm sure you've heard of the Dunning-Kruger effect, you know, that um, the less we know not. the more... Oh, yeah. No, so the, you have to be careful. <laughs> Melissa, with,
0: have you? Is it, no, is it just no me? I haven't. Okay. Don't worry. So, I'm like, so, Melissa needs to admit whether she <laughs> knows this or not, because I'm saying I don't.
2: <laughs> yeah. Um, so Dunning-Kruger effect um, has been around for a while in psychological circles. And basically, uh, it posits that um, the less people know about a topic, the more competent they tend to think they are. And the more they know, the less competent they are, oh, they, 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 they feel. Not because they are less competent. Their expertise actually increases, but they are much more aware of what they don't know. Mm. And we think that essentially the issue with teaching is, uh, is this, uh, that teachers need to raise their level of expertise. Teacher training institutions aren't doing that. Um, governments aren't doing that. We have to do it for ourselves. Uh, and that is what the research ed movement is about. And that's why we've done the series of books.
0: I'm so well, we're excited that you did. I'm so glad Thank I learned you. that today. <laughs> I know. Thank you. That's great. Um, we will we will put a link to the guide. I'm holding it right Thank now. You. Everybody yep. can't see it, but we will put a link uh, to the guide. And um, also, maybe I'll also link your other book. Yeah, uh, that thinking, would be great. reading. Yeah, because I know we're going to do a, a part two podcast. Um, to discuss Thinking Reading, What Every Secondary Teacher Needs to Know About Reading, and that's by James and Diane Murphy. Is that your wife?
2: Yeah, and Diane's the real expert. Um, <laughs> so um, it'd be really good to have her talking about what she knows about how to teach children with reading difficulties because she's just, you know, she knows it so well she almost doesn't realise she knows it. And uh, oh. um, uh, she's been particularly good at that... Um, that cusp between support and challenge. Mm. It, making the student understand <clears throat> that I believe in you even though you don't believe in yourself. <laughs> Let's uh, Just follow me and I'll get you over the top. Yeah,
1: I, I can't wait for that conversation. That's right, <laughs> right in my wheelhouse. <laughs>
2: yeah. Super.
1: <laughs> All right, James. Um, to wrap up today, do you have any um, a piece of advice for our audience that you haven't already shared? You've shared a million things, but... Um, one last piece of advice.
2: Uh, one piece of advice: find out about. Um, find out about. It's
0: okay. We we always we always have <laughs> dogs and children in the background. No worries. Yeah. You have a ringing phone.
2: <laughs> yeah. Um, it it never rings. <laughs> our, landline, our landline only. <laughs> landline <laughs> time cycles. Um, it's so, okay.
0: Um, Cue the <laughs> advice and the phone rings.
2: <laughs> um, uh, find out about Siegfried Engelman, direct instruction, and project follow through.
0: Got it. I will try to link that too.
2: Absolutely.
1: Well, it was wonderful to have you today. I, I learned so much from reading this. Sh- short great. guide but meaty guide I'm going to keep reading it reading your new book now <laughs> Super. and it was just great to talk to you thank you so much
2: yeah all right it's been a pleasure talking to both of you and I uh, look forward to part two at some point
0: yes yes same <laughs> thanks James
2: okay bye thank
0: you Bye. bye